Hello, folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, a.k.a. Stephen Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visa blog and author of a special relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visitview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, dot blogspot.com. And procure a copy of that book and my other works at the farm's official store, which is the farm store. Again, that's all one word, the farm store. And please consider signing up for the farm's Patreon. In the lowest tier, you get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content. And that's just scratching the surface. There's a lot of other goodies in the all-access tier, including um, my dispatches from the various journeys I take across the country, uh, State of the Union addresses as we look into the ongoing geopolitical developments in the world we live in, and a lot of other kind of random stuff uh, that a lot of people find to be highly interesting. So including updates on ongoing investigations I have, materials that I've managed to acquire, all kinds of interesting stuff. So definitely give that a thought, guys. Okay, today's guest is a major repeater. She had a near-death experience, or NDE, at the age of 21, and it had a profound effect on her life. Since then, she has explored and experienced a wide range of high strangeness, and more importantly, she has dedicated herself to helping others understand these types of experiences, which, you know, from firsthand is far easier said than done. She is a writer and a blogger. Folks, I give you guys the great Stephanie Quick. Stephanie, thank you so much for dropping by again today, sir. Everybody always loves it when you swing by. Oh, hi, everyone. Yeah, I'm real. Uh, like I said, I am excited about this show, but I'm also very nervous because we're dealing with a pretty uh, hot topic. Yeah, it's uh, it's going to be something else, and and it is a juicy topic. Uh, bit of a pun on that too. Uh, I'll probably be dropping some bad puns left and right actually throughout this episode, so maybe get used to it. Um, but you got to kind of go that route with our topic today, and that's because it's human sacrifice, probably the most taboo of subjects that you could possibly tackle uh, that doesn't involve pedophilia directly, <laughs> anyway, or incest. Mm. But, uh, seriously, we're going to use Patrick Tierney's classic work, The Highest Altar, as a touchstone for an exploration into this particularly taboo subject. But as odd as it, as it uh, the saying is, the reasons for human sacrifice are often far more complex than we often believe. Stephanie and I are going to explore how this subject appears in a variety of faiths and traditions from Catholicism, European paganism, and various indigenous cultures. It's pretty much a widespread universal custom, uh, again, which is something about it that is not really understood. It's not specifically unique to one group or other, um, even though there's often attempts to depict it as such. It's going to be quite a discussion, so let's start the show.
just wanted to say I was um I was happy that uh you were up for discussing this because um I've I want to say you have a very nice outline, but I, I get the feeling that I'm going to be kind of take going in my own directions. But um, I have been interested uh, in anthropology and other cultures and um, human sacrifice, actually, from the time I was very small. A lot of people have run across that book, The Bog People, um, which is uh, these uh, European um, bodies that were preserved from, uh, I think they're uh, Paleolithic or, you know, very uh, old times, um, people were sacrificed in these bogs and uh, very well preserved due to the, all the, the high level of tannin in uh, these bogs. And so, you know, it's very moving to see, um, you know, a human face from thousands of years ago. And, um, you know, you can see this person, it'll be like a middle-aged man with like stubble, you know, like your father. But so it's this connection, but at the same time, there's this horror because, you know, they're, they were sacrificed. They still, in some cases, they still have these, um, the ropes around their necks that were used to strangle them, um, killed ritually. Uh, so, you know, from then I was, you know, it's a horrible thing to think about. And, but then, you know, you're comforted because at the same time, it's all so long ago and that they're wearing strange clothing. And, and so you kind of other it. And like you're saying, human sacrifices I've come to understand, you know, in my time since studying anthropology in college and, and dipping into it um, off and on through the years. Uh, it is, it's, it's very widespread. There's always a lot of guilt and taboo about it. There's always, um, you know, the, I mean, it's horrible to, to kill other people. Everyone understands no one wants this really to happen to them, but it seems to be part of the world generally that as you know, animals, we end up having to um, consume other living beings to stay alive. Uh, I was reading in, uh, I think in Tierney's book, uh, uh, Eskimo or Inuit uh, hunter was talking about, you know, that's the, the tragedy of the world is that we have to live through death. Um, so this is something that every culture and that all individuals have to grapple with. But, um, and this is actually how Tierney uh, wraps up his book, on this, uh, you know, a, a huge book trying to grapple with this uh, across time and space. Um, he wraps it up, he's at the Holocaust Memorial and he says, you know, that the Nazis uh, were able to uh, demonize the Jewish people uh, by saying and, and get people worked up to participate in the Holocaust by leveraging this whole idea that had been coming around since about uh, 1000 AD that uh, the Jews um, were kidnapping and sacrificing and consuming um, the Gentile children. And it was called blood libel. And it, it was investigated by uh, uh, many different authorities uh, legally through the time, uh, through the church and everything. They said they can't find anything. No, this is not happening. But this libel persisted. And um, so the Nazis whipped it up um, as part of uh the Holocaust. And so they were accusing the Jews of kidnapping and killing children. Meanwhile, they killed like about a million and a half Jewish children. So this is the problem. We, no one wants to grapple with this. No one really wants to think about it, but it's always there, this whole idea of human sacrifice. And if we don't try and look at it compassionately and a, a little bit more with a wide perspective, then you end up just kind of putting it onto these other people and demonizing them. And then you fall into that trap of being okay with it yourself.
Yeah, which I mean, in turn, kind of brings up moral panics and a lot of this other yes. stuff that commonly uh, turns up in ritual abuse and ritual sacrifices, which you might have a chance to get into here a little bit. Um, but before we really get going, I know you wanted to sort of get into a bit about anthropo anthropological sorry, uh, practices here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, you know, like how they've sort of changed since uh, the time when Tyranny wrote the book. Because we're going to use Tyranny a lot as a source for this and Highest Altars. I, it came out like, what, 1991 or something like that. It was yes. written during the 1980s. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's it's over 30 years old now. I mean, standards have certainly changed uh, since then. I mean, it was written at a time when it was just kind of becoming acceptable again to address you know, topics like human sacrifice in the first place in regards to indigenous cultures um, that had been really a pretty taboo subject during the prior decade. So um, he was able to do some things with it, you know, that during prior eras uh, might not have been as entirely acceptable, but I mean, certainly, you know, standards have changed since then as well. So where are we now as far as anthropology goes in terms of studying indigenous customs, Stephanie? I am not up on best practices and the state of the art. Um, it is, uh, I, well, as I was saying before, it's like going to be, be doing like a semester long course on everything we've dug up here and uh, to really address the issues. However, um, so he was, uh, Tierney was, took anthropological courses. He never actually graduated and was certified as an anthropologist. Um, but he used certain of these techniques, which is uh, something that is still happens today is, you know, basically, if you want to find out about other people, you end up having to go out uh, to where they are and trying to develop a uh, relationship with them. Is it, can you hear the dog? <laughs> what is it going on about? You have to try and develop a relationship with these people and get them to talk to you about um, whatever it is that you want to know about. Um, so he, uh, the highest altar kind of has about, uh, three, three or four parts to it. Uh, Tierney talks about, uh, Incan, uh, sacrifices, uh, human sacrifices that are being investigated archeologically in the very high altitude mountains of this area. Um, he talks about records from the time of the Spanish colonization where, uh, you can uh, find these historical records written by Span uh, Spanish people about what they were observing the indigenous people doing uh, ritually at uh, the time, like around the 16th, 17th centuries. Um, and then there have been rumors and in fact, uh, court cases in certain instances where people have been con convicted and spent time in jail for participating in human sacrifice in the modern era, particularly uh, one case in 1960 of a little boy named Louis Jean Pansacur, I think is how his name was going. Um, and uh, two people were uh, put in jail um, for participating in this sacrifice. And it happened, and this is part of the anthropological project as well. Um, he contextualizes it because there was actually one of the largest earthquakes that has ever happened in the history that we know about happened right near this very small village where these people were living right next to the water, um, Mapuche indigenous people. And uh, there were three tsunamis and um, the indigenous uh, origin myth in that area has to do with a uh, original family 
who is a husband and wife, they have a small child, um, and the waters keep rising up, they keep rising up, they keep rising up, and there's no place for the people to be, and eventually they sacrifice their child to the oceans so that things will calm down. Um, and this is the origin story of uh, the people in that area. Uh, so the Mapuche people, when the waters were rising and rising in the typical uh, places that they would go to escape from tsunami, um, were being inundated. Uh, then they ended up, um, one of the uh, head men in the village, one of the village leaders, and another man who were in charge of like organizing people, like head of extended families, uh, uh, you know, the, in charge of organizing rituals and stuff, they, along with a uh, woman shaman, uh, ended up sacrificing this one guy's grandson. Um, his mother was away working as a domestic servant in the city, I believe, at the time. Um, and so he went back to this village, uh, Tierney did, uh, about 20, 25 years later, and tried to find out, oh, you know, okay, what went down, what happened, just find out what he could. Um, and you see that there it is, it is problematic because, uh, you know, if you had this, I mean, everyone's completely traumatized. It, in the community about you know what happened and how they dealt with it. Um, one woman, the the woman shaman, is basically seen as like a scapegoat and a kind of a witch. She kind of like holds the guilt for the community. Um, but you imagine this outsider comes in and you're asking all these questions about something no one wants to talk about. You know, you just want to kind of put it in the past, not think about it. He is basically stirring the shit big time. <laughs> Um, you, and I'm not sure how it works now, but if you go into a community, right, and, and people are like subsistence farmers, it's a pretty, you know, bare bones existence. Um, they're dealing with a lot of racism and, you know, systemic problems uh, against, that, that make their lives very difficult. There'll be, you know, crime and pro poverty. Um, and then you go in there and you uh, have all this money and flash. And traditionally, um, anthropologists will, you know, pay uh, people for stories or give them gifts. Um, in this uh, instance where Tierney uh, goes and, and is tracking down another human sacrifice that a uh, man was sacrificed and his widow was left um, with nine children, he uh, tries to uh, give her he gives her uh, money to help her build a house and tries to get the community involved in helping her build the house um, so that she has some um, something there to help with all these kids and, and in her circumstances and as a reward, basically, uh, for helping him with this research. But, um, you know, then you end up, you know, being the Westerner with all the money, then you leave, you can get out of that situation, but you've stirred up all this controversy and all these things that you don't really understand because that's why you're there. You're trying to understand it. Um, so you kind of like uh, kick the hornet's nest and then leave. What are the ethics involved in that? Um, it is a very thorny issue. I'm not sure that it has been completely uh, sorted out. Um, I think that uh, Highest Altar by Tierney is definitely um, a book where he tries to wrestle with this in himself, his kind of lust and hunger to get to the bottom 
of what has happened in this community, what is going on in this area with uh, human sacrifice. Yeah, it's um, like, it's interesting because I know one of the things that really sort of like sets him outside of the community is the fact that um, he's a vegetarian mm -hmm. and uh, meat is such a major, you know, food staple among the Mapuche. And that's kind of something that continuously throughout, um, you know, when he tries to go to these group meals and stuff with them, it kind of, creates tension because i mean he doesn't want to eat any of the meats um you know that they're providing which is kind of the centerpiece of a lot of these like feasts and what have you which mm -hmm. also kind of inadvertently causes offense and of course he like in turn kind of fantasizes about you know being able to convert them into this you know peaceful tribe of uh, nature loving vegetarians and you know so you see this sort of like kind of projection to the kind of western notion of what idealized indigenous people should be like i think in a sense where they would be in his view more in harmony with nature than what he's you know encountered from these you know meat eaters that still engage in human sacrifice <laughs> was the whole idea of the the noble savage and the whole idea that well we were talking about it in our dm the whole idea of um well when i was uh being trained i was uh taking anthropology courses i never graduated either just to be clear um so i'm not certified i was never certified uh there was this idea of the ethnographic present. So it's this kind of construct where you can uh, take an area, uh, let's say the uh, United States Southwest, for example, and you can have all these various uh, myths and practices and oral histories and artifacts that have been accumulated over uh, a certain, you know, couple hundred years or something. Um, by various anthropologists and historians and whatnot. You can kind of all combine it together into this idea that, well, it's kind of like uh, this one moment. You kind of abstract it, and then you as the anthropologist can come in and systematize it and then present it, right? Because that's the other kind of ethical problem here is that, um, you know, for example, the Mapuche that uh, Cherny was speaking with, many of them were uh, either completely or pretty much illiterate. Um, how is a person in that situation um, in a very remote area of the world going to present to the largest society their own uh, experience and ideas, right? Well, it has to come through the anthropologist, through the writer. Um, so that's obviously uh, contains, uh, it's a, a position of huge responsibility and ethics. However, if you want to, uh, uh, let's say, have a, a best-selling book or get uh, your ideas out there, you have to you have to be able to present it in a way uh, that your own audience of uh, Western academics, literate people, uh, and so on, let's say uh, New Yorker readers or people who read the New York Times or Time Magazine, you have to kind of. Uh, process it and create it and present it in a way that people will be able to understand and get into it, uh, into that worldview. So it's a very uh, kind of fraught situation because um, on the one hand, it is an opportunity to present uh, indigenous peoples and other peoples uh, to the to uh, other societies in a way that can increase understanding and um, can be very helpful going uh, back 
and forth both ways. Because, for example, you could get a better understanding of the actual issues that people are dealing with in uh, these societies and how we could help them, um, if, you know, governmentally or whatever. At the same time, it can be very exploitive, right? Where you're just saying, wow, look at these, uh, this fascinating exotic culture. And it's just, um, let's say, uh, you know, it can be used to like, you know, if you're saying, well, look at these people, they still eat human sacrifice. So just savages, whatever, right? That can definitely be used against these people to uh, enact various repressive um, and horrible measures against them, right? So it's a very fine line. And um, yeah, it's something where it's definitely an academic discipline. So it has like this intellectual rigor to it. But, um, and I think reading Tierney's account, you know, you really see how it, brings up um you know the individual the individual investigators own issues and ideas and preconceived notions and you're confronted with you know well what what do you think is ethical and moral um what have you been able to get away with not confronting because of you know your own circumstances uh being uh, maybe easier in that way you know if you haven't had to actually um try and grow and produce your own food it's easier to be a vegetarian um but you know if you are out living kind of more subsistence existence then um and especially in high altitude situations um then uh, animals are become uh, incredibly important because you don't you know it's very difficult to grow enough uh, calories just to keep body and soul together so you have to confront that aspect of uh, life. Whereas, you know, if you're uh, in suburban America, <laughs> you know, you have the luxury of being able to not think about that. So yeah, you know, I don't know if I'm presenting this all uh, properly, but yeah, it's a thing. Um, because we wanted to talk to you about the whole controversy uh, with uh, Tierney's uh, second book, Darkness in El Dorado, where he uh, decided to make a lot of accusations against anthropologists who are studying the Yanomamo in the Amazonian uh, basin. Um, and he mostly went against a guy, uh, Napoleon Chagnon. Now, if anyone has taken an intro to anthropology course in college over the last what, 40 years, probably, you'll have read uh, his classic book, The Yanomamo, The First People. Uh, the Yanomami are a uh, horticultural people who live in the Amazonian basin in uh, small villages. And I have to say, uh, to start with, that uh, in part due to uh, Chagnon's um, advocacy for them, uh, they have been able to have uh, land set aside for them. Um, so as I understand it at this point, they are in a better situation to not be uh, displaced, um, which often goes very badly for indigenous peoples. Um, so Napoleon Chagnon went to uh, the Amazonian basin to study uh, the Yanomamo in 1964. And um, he developed this idea and he lived with them for uh, studying them over uh, many decades. And uh, that's the classic subtitle of his book is The Fierce People. And he really emphasized the role of men um, committing violence in the society of the Yanomamo. Um, and so he developed a lot of uh, kind of an overall 
theory about the role of violence. Um, I was reading a interview with him and it was done for Scientific American around 2000. He's addressing some of Tierney's accusations against Shenyon. And Tierney was basically saying that uh, Shenyon um, falsified some data, made the Yanomamu seem more uh, violent than he than they actually were. Um, and that, uh, again, getting to the whole role of exchange, that um, when Shenyon went into uh, these remote areas, that he brought along uh, uh, axes and knives, basically steel uh, tools, which of course, if you're trying to hack a living out of the jungle, it's gonna be, you know, clearing areas uh, for your gardens and stuff. This is gonna be really very helpful, but um, it, intro it introduces uh, these highly valued objects into a situation. And so then there could be competition, basically. Like you're, a form you're, of contamination, basically. Yeah, kind of contamination and then kind of, um, you know, you're putting in these resources that people want. And so they're gonna do more to try and get them. You're just kind of, Amp, amping up existing, um, uh, how do I want to say inequalities and competition? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so he's saying that could have amped it up. And then he also had questions about the way that, uh, that, um, they worked to vaccinate people in the Yanomami against a measles epidemic. I'm not sure about that because I think if you hadn't vaccinated people, we've seen this for the last what, 500 years over and over again, when you have these populations that are immune to these um, plagues or uh, infectious agents, it can go extraordinarily badly for them. Um, but uh, there's one other thing, and now I can't read my own writing here. But yeah, um, there are articles about this. Basically, uh, Tierney's book came out, it was very controversial. The American Association of Anthropology decided to uh, set up a task force to investigate these allegations. And um, uh, originally the task force said, yeah, we think some of this stuff was not, not ethical. Uh, oh, the other thing is that um, uh, the way that uh, Shenyong was uh, kind of cozying up to some uh, corrupt governments um, in order to get uh, access to these areas because he'd need a research uh, visa basically to go in and uh, be uh, with these people and live with them and study them. And so uh, they were kind of like, well, should you really be messing up, you know, cozying up to this uh, corrupt Brazilian president at this time? Um, so in uh, 2001, they set up a task force. In 2002, they accepted the um, deposition that he uh, had acted unethically, Napoleon Chagnon, to get access to the Yanomamo after he was denied access. Um, but then in 2005, they rescinded their acceptance of the task force findings. This is the American Anthropological Association. Um, and so it's been kind of back and forth ever since. But this gets to the problem of, um, you know, anthropology always wants to be seen as a discipline and as a bit of a science. Um, but it's very difficult, you know, it's incredibly remote in these areas. The political situation is volatile. Um, people keep field notes and you can go and check them, but it's very difficult to go in there and try and figure out, tease out what exactly happened. Um, 
And so it's still kind of a controversial. I think too, there's the whole idea that uh, Chagnon had uh, about uh, really pushing the violent nature of Yanomamo society. And it sounds like he definitely saw a lot of it, but was he really contextualized? And this was weird for me to read because he was talking in about you know the early 2000s. Uh, he continually referred to the Yanomamo as primitive people. And um, I, <laughs> I didn't realize we were still doing that at that time. It's um, the idea that that uh, there is this kind of ascending scale of human humanity, right? And we start with like the uh, primitive Stone Age people, and then we're kind of continually moving forward until we have oh us, the perfect uh, nuclear. The electric car driving. Well, it kind of plays into sort of like the Western bias in general for a perception based on linear time, which I mean, you yes. know, in and of itself kind of, I think, cuts to the heart of a lot of the, you know, the differences in worldviews between the more indigenous uh, societies and more Western ones, because, I mean, they tend to be more, you know, around silical time and things of that nature, which... Mm -hmm. You know, after centuries of living in a linear fashion, I mean, it's very alien to us in the West to kind of think about these, you know, cycles of time and repetition and so forth. And, you know, how things don't necessarily change the way that we think that they do. They just kind of uh, become forgotten until they, be, you know, come back around again. Yes. And um, that, you know, and then also the idea of, you know, progress continually moving forward. Um, and it's kind of this weird uh, thing, because the other thing I noticed about Chagnon, and, and this is when I first read him, um, as well as today, he talks about how the guys are always, the men, Yanomami uh, men are always fighting over women and trying to get access to women. But I, he has a lot about men and what they do and their rituals and all this stuff. But there's not a lot about women. Now, to be fair, this is because um, the way the society set up, he, you know, it was very difficult for men to access Yanomama women and, and find out what they're up to. But at the same time, you know, they're, they're all, you know, they're, they're having the babies, raising the children, uh, doing a ton of work around uh, building things in the gardens, uh, processing food, cooking food, uh, making uh, baskets and other items that uh, you're going to need for daily life. So obviously, this is a large part of what's keeping the whole society rolling, but it just kind of like falls to the wayside. Um which is weird. The other thing is that uh, from the beginning, Shenyon had problems with the Christian missionaries in the area, which you think should give you a clue that maybe these aren't just like completely remote, absolutely primitive people who have been untouched by Western society. <laughs> if you have to go through the missionaries to get to them. I had a professor who uh, was an anthropology professor um, when I was first encountering Chagnon at UC Santa Cruz, and uh, the professor was uh, Rick Wilk. And he talked about when he first was going out to do field work, he was uh, interested in uh, Central American archaeology and anthropology. And so he went down someplace, I don't know, Costa Rica or something, and he started asking everyone, okay, what's like the most remote, unwesternized uh, 
you know, village that you know about. So he's asking around, finally hears about this place. Okay. And he, I mean, he took like about a week to get there, like driving, hiking, all this stuff. Okay. So finally he rolls up to this village and the first thing he hears is Freddie Fender playing over a tape recorder and then sees people drinking Coca-Cola. Yeah, that'd uh, be quite disappointing. <laughs> but it's the truth. The whole yeah. idea that that um, you have these kind of uh, islands of untouched, uh, you know, noble, romantic savages living as uh, people did thousands of years ago is a lie. Um, and that's one thing that I think has become a lot more uh uh, apparent and accepted in anthropological research these days from what I've been able to see, uh, which is that, yes, we need to acknowledge that these people have also been living through history with us, and they're subject to all these uh, forces uh, in different ways, through different cultural lenses, uh, through different uh, material means uh, than uh, someone living in the suburbs is, but we've, we're all going through time uh, together, and um, it's foolish to to look at these um, places and think, oh yeah, it's this kind of like surviving relic. You're not going down. It, it hasn't been something that's been like put in a bubble uh, all alone and not subject to any other influences for thousands of years. They're going through uh, life just with the rest of us and living through you know, the colonization and, and all the other historical events that have been happening around here. But I thought it was very funny that um, my professor put it that way, because, uh, you know, in a way, it's a jibe at, at people like Shangyo who try and say, oh, it's like kind of this primitive relic uh, population. It's like, no, um, you know, we're, we're all being subject to these influences. I think maybe the Sentinel uh, Islanders, it was in the uh, Indian Ocean, who've been protected, but you know, could be uh, more close to that, but that's a, a very unusual circumstance. And, and most, um, you know, people, I, I mean, you have to know what's going on in the world. You have to uh, interact with, with what's happening. And a lot of these, uh, you know, invasions, colonial uh, movements, just mass movements of people and, and whatnot have been uh, very impactful as the saying goes but uh, yeah so that's a little bit about uh, anthropology and so when we talk about some of these things more i think it's important to keep in mind you know how do you how do you know about it if we hear about um let's say uh patrick turney talking about what a shaman told him about their understanding of uh, certain uh, rituals regarding uh, the ocean and mountains uh, among the Mapuche. Lots of times I'll hear, um, especially people talk about like uh, par paranormal things or whatever. It's kind of like, oh, it's presented as a fact, but it'll come from an account, right? Someone spoke to someone else at a particular place and time, and they had that communication, which has been recorded. Um, and I think it's important to keep that context in mind and to keep in mind that it, these aren't just kind of um, kind of pristine ideas that are uh, appearing in the air fully <laughs> for, right? It's through people, uh, individual people at particular times and places. And uh, so it makes it more interesting um, 
but to, yeah, to try and tease it out, you know, in particular historical context, I think it's important to, to keep that in mind. Cause I think sometimes, um, well, it's like the whole idea of shamanism when it comes to uh, people look at, for example, certain uh, entity encounters or like uh, with UFO occupants and we'll say, oh, there's these shamanic elements to them. But the whole idea of shamanism as like this is kind of like this abstracted idea, which has come from an, a number of these different accounts and traditions. And if you start to drill down into them, um, saying, okay, there is this one particular shaman, uh, let's say in Korea, um, their practices, traditions, um, taboos, uh, uh, totemic uh, spirits, um, all these things are going to be very specific to a time and place. And they could be very different from uh, someone else on the other side of the world. Now, they will still maybe use ecstatic trance, the idea of contacting these other uh, entities that you develop relationships with, that you work with, um, to try and perform uh, healing and other uh, benefits for a larger you know, community context. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I always uh, am hoping that people will get a little bit more specific um, because sometimes you have these... Um, numinous experiences that people come up with spontaneously like a ufo occupant encounters and i wonder uh some of the imagery and structure does it relate to uh indigenous um, practices that have a tradition in that area or uh, other traditions that have come in and uh, taken place i don't know but i think if we uh drill down a little bit into the specifics of it um, we might get a better understanding and it's more accurate as to uh, the phenomenon because it's it, there's not a lot of uh, abstract shamans uh, or shamanic traditions out there it's like saying it's like saying someone's a christian right You're, most people are uh, they're methodist or they're catholic uh, italian or um you know they're uh, unitarian or right you know, there's very few people that are out there. Oh, I'm just like Christian generic form. <laughs> so, and I think it's the same um, with a lot of these other practices. So, yeah, I mean, shamanism is such like a catch-all term for like so many different uh, and you know traditions that I mean we've uncovered across the world. Um, but there's a you know another aspect too. I mean, there's two things that I also wanted to kind of weigh in on before we uh, get going here with some of the specifics in Tyranny's book regarding. Uh, anthropology. I mean, the, the first, I think also, you know, they have to sort of note is the geopolitical situation in a lot of these countries, because, um, again, obviously, a lot of uh, this kind of research is done in the developing world, you know, because that's where we have a lot of questions about culture and where it came from and that type of thing, uh, you know, us being people from the West, that is to say. So, you know, when you're in the developing world, it's not necessarily going to have the best you know, political stability in a lot of these uh, countries that you'll be venturing to. Uh, so, yeah, I think that that is also like a factor when it comes to Westerners with a certain amount of money and influence coming into these countries and trying to, you know, have discussions with locals about their beliefs and things of that nature. I mean, especially if there's a lot of political uh, repercussions going on at the time. I mean, certainly uh, in Tyranny's case with the highest altars, I mean, a good chunk of the research took place in Chile. Uh, I think 
starting in the late 70s going in through the 80s and I mean this was of course throughout the you know the time frame of the dictatorship of Pinochet um which is hinted at a little bit uh here and there throughout human altars but he never really um yeah. addresses that whole concept head on and again I get why I mean it was probably too much of a hot topic uh to really delve into and it's also probably likely that he needed some kind of uh, understanding from the Pinochet regime to you know even do his research um yep. some of those areas during that time so that was probably also an issue but you know that's it's a part of the story that's kind of left out for a variety of reasons and I mean Chile is not the only I mean this was pretty much the height of the dirty wars throughout South America um you know the 1980s which you know you don't really get very much of a sense of in tyranny's book but i mean it was even worse in argentina um and there's a little bit about the the cocaine coup in bolivia that had led to a lot of instability in peru um but you know again not necessarily to the extent i think um that probably it should have been presented uh so yeah i mean there's a lot of big geopolitical factors that are playing into the backdrop of tyranny's narrative in south america during the late 70s and early 80s that just for a variety of reasons are not addressed and you know in my case I mean it's easy to sort of fill in the blanks because I've studied the dirty wars and a lot of that kind of stuff a lot so I can uh make connections to some of the geopolitical events that were also unfolding during the same time that he was there but I mean a lot of people aren't going to be able to make those connections because they're not you know nearly as familiar with the history of that particular region of the world so that's something to sort of keep in mind uh, I would say for people listening to this and just in general when you're going back and you know I mean looking at something like highest alders by a guy like tyranny is that you know a lot of times uh, when they're in the field doing this kind of research there are limits as to what kind of commentary they can make about the geopolitics surrounding them and you know a lot of times I mean they have to outright censor a lot of this stuff uh, for the sake of being able to even operate in these regions and um that brings me to the second point which is also the just you know the weaponization of anthropology and it's um used by the uh the military and uh the intelligence community uh in the United States um you know really throughout the Cold War era and be certainly beyond um this is again like another major topic uh that's never really discussed but um anthropology as a discipline I mean really you know owes a good chunk of its uh, existence uh, to the military industrial complex if we're being perfectly honest I mean especially I would argue from the Cold War going forward um I mean this is really uh, very much the case uh, with the army especially and a lot of the special operations community um you know when we started sort of going in for this approach to unconventional warfare starting in the 1950s and you know you had the rise of visionaries like Edward Lansdale um there was a major effort to harness anthropology uh towards the ends of weaponizing indigenous superstitions and beliefs um you know for uh the benefit of the U.S. military and uh, the intelligence community and I mean this was pretty extensive too I mean the Army Special Operations Command alone had its own think tank essentially the Special Operations Research Agency I think or something like that or organization they call it the Soros or something 
Um, but I mean, this was, you know, a group that was like researching the practices of witchcraft and magic in the Belgian Congo, um, you know, during the early 1960s. So they were very much into the lot of this just really weird woo-woo stuff that they could, I mean, anything that they could find in indigenous traditions that was strange. I mean, they really wanted to look at and usually the weirder, the better, to be honest. So, but anyway, this is like another aspect of this as well is just how much the military and the intelligence community have used anthropology and anthropologists as um, a means of psychological warfare uh essentially and also for spycraft because again you know i mean it's it's not uncommon um you know for anthropologists to be used to keep tabs on political developments in these countries as well because again they might be able to access them when you know other kinds of officials and bureaucrats would be denied entry so yep there's that component too but there's a lot about just anthropology in general that's really suspect i mean again you know it's it's usually sort of depicted as this kind of sainted discipline with you know i mean all of these well-meaning westerners who are so committed to trying to understand indigenous cultures and preserving them and so on and so forth and i mean it's uh it's a smokescreen for a lot of more nefarious and i mean not to say that a lot of the people who are anthropologists aren't well-meaning i mean in my experience they generally are it's just that um a lot of uh moneyed interests behind them i mean have generally gone to great lengths to manipulate the discipline and how it's used and a lot of times the results that it generates and so forth and you know this is a process that continues to this very day so you know it's it's something to keep in mind i i was uh thinking about this from, from a couple different angles because the, the thing is is that um if anything is grounded in reality and is powerful it can be used for good or for ill right i was thinking of um let's see once we understood i want you understand that kind of the hydrological uh or hydraulic uh mechanism of the human circulatory system right the heart the valves the pressures involved um, you can either use that to more efficiently murder someone, or you can use it to extend someone's life. So once you have these, uh, you know, uh, disciplines or sciences, if they have a grounding in reality um, and they're powerful, then you know that gives you the choice which way are you going to go with it. And I think it's just the case with that anthropology. I think that there are um, a lot of anthropologists who are well-meaning who put their uh, time and energy where uh, their heart is and really work to help the people that they're studying um, in uh, many ways. And, uh, but yeah, there is this whole strain too where it can be really used, it can be weaponized and it can be uh, levers, like you say, I mean, it's like perfect cover for spies um, to go in there and, oh, I'm just studying as an anthropologist, right? Um, yeah, uh, I was also talking with, uh, cause you know, we were talking, uh, in your notes about uh, these types of rituals that are performed uh, around human sacrifice, but then uh, generally, and I was speaking with an artist, I don't know if she wants me to use her name or not, but she's like, there's a certain point where it's almost like a mechanical process. Um, you know, there's certain uh, 
psychic or magical processes that just or uh, equations that just make sense or just tend to work. And again, that's something where you can use it uh, selflessly uh, for the benefit of the community to try and further harmony, or you can uh, just go for your own uh, purely selfish, individualistic, materialistic needs, because there's something about that uh, process in our world that you have been able to identify uh, in, uh, in an objective manner. So, yeah. But yeah, for me, that was kind of like another one of the interesting things about like reading high, you know, highest altars and how, um, you know, a lot of the people respond to tyranny because again, it's it's not really mentioned. But I mean, a lot of them are, you know, also I think trying to figure out whether or not he's a spy or, yep. <laughs> you know, connected in some way to like Pinochet's regime or something yeah. like that as well. Um, you know, that's kind of like uh, a bit of subtext to it that's never really kind of addressed overtly. But I mean, you know, if you are aware of a lot of the stuff that was going on in that region of the world at the time, and just kind of the legacy of anthropology in general, you'll pick up on that. And it's, um, it definitely provides like another kind of additional uh, plot line, I think, uh, to the whole narrative uh, that doesn't really uh, that flies over a lot of people's heads, typically, when they're reading the book. I wanted to just add, just in case someone is coming into this cold, uh, the Dirty Wars, uh, Pinochet, what was going on there is that you had these uh, very oppressive dictators who were installed and supported by the United States. And um, they were constantly looking for people who were dissidents. And uh, they'd be identified uh, and disappeared, right? They, you'd have people that would be kidnapped um, and uh, held, tortured, uh, flat and out murdered. Yeah. yeah, and it, it's really relevant to, you know, to this particular, uh, to Chile especially, uh, and Tyranny's work, because I mean, uh, you know, we'll get to this in a minute, but I mean, it's not that far from where um, one of the tribes he was investigating from Colonia Dignidad was like located, and I mean, certainly if you're familiar with the history of Colonia Dignidad, you know, quite a few people disappeared there, and um, there were actually some tourists and so forth um, visiting Chile, during this era in the 1970s that did disappear in the region near Colonia Dignidad. Uh, so again, you know, this was kind of um, an ongoing concern for people in this region. You know, I mean, there were these very real geopolitical uh, implications playing out very near, you know, some of these sites that tyranny was trying to visit and uh, excavate and so forth. So, yeah. And I, another aspect that, I, and this is, Okay, we're getting into, I mean, this is, we're getting into some of the very, incredibly, just. I mean, it's been distressing already, but like incredibly distressing material is very difficult. Um, but it's interesting to me, and this is one of the things that I do not like about Tierney's work here is because he ignores, one of the things that the re regimes would do down there is they would like to kidnap, because we spoke before about sacrifice of children. They would kidnap young women who, dissidents who were pregnant, and they would keep them until they delivered their children. They would murder these women, and then they would give the babies to uh, friends of the regime as like a, a token of, uh, as like a gift. Um, and uh, there was a lot of um, uh, political work and demonstration by the mothers of the disappeared and uh, very uh, terrible consequences, but with, you know, women trying to find their grandchildren. 
And then can you imagine being one of these children finding out the history of your birth? Um, so to me, when Tierney talks about these indigenous people who, who like in the case in 1960, the man who gave up his own grandson, it shows, well, these people did this, they were prosecuted for it. But it, meanwhile, in the background, you have the government doing it wholesale just for purely political motives. You know, at least when they sacrificed little uh, Louis, he, you know, all those people were you know, in danger of, of their lives. I mean, it's like, you know, they had this tsunami was so bad that 10,000 miles away in Hilo, Hawaii, it did a whole huge amount of damage. And these people were right there. I would hope that I would, I mean, it's horrible. They all feel terrible about it, but at least those people were doing it, you know, to try and keep their entire world from disappearing and being flooded, you know, that, and the rate, so he'll put that out there. But meanwhile, this regime is just doing it for like the most cold-blooded, uh, selfish, you know, calculations, the, the same thing, you know, just using uh, children as, as a chattel for their own political gain. So, yeah. Now, one of the great things about Tyranny's book is the acknowledgement of how universal and prevalent the custom of human sacrifice was and is. So Highest Allers explores the role it plays in a lot of different cultures, as we've been alluding to. But um, Tyranny does seem to go out of his way in the end to kind of reinforce its presence in the Judeo-Christian tradition, which I think is very important. Um, you know, it also kind of provides a bit of precedent to how theoretically re-emerged quote-unquote in South America um, during the 1970s and 80s uh, and 60s as well but before getting to that uh, why don't we start with some of the thinly veiled references to sacrifice in the Old Testament especially in regards to some of the um, the esoteric traditions involving Cain and his bloodline uh, so what do you got for us in that regard Stephanie? Well <laughs> Uh, I should laugh, but there is so much mater material out there, even more since this book came out, about just this whole thing of people, scholars trying to grapple with what the heck actually happened in the Old Testament, uh, in the New Testament, what all this stuff. Anyway, so Tierney uh, has uh, found a Jewish scholar, Chaim Maccabee, who has written a book. Um, and uh, call uh, the uh, the sacred executioner is, I believe, his uh, concept and uh, the title of one of his books. But it's basically about this idea that uh, human sacrifice tends to, or someone dying, uh, tends to show up at uh, all across the world and time in various cultures with these. Uh, foundational myths of civilizations or cultures. Um, so Maccabee in his book talks a lot about the uh, Cain and Abel story and through uh, linking uh, the name Cain to uh, a, uh, a, a tribe that was adjacent to uh, the Israelites at the time of the founding of Israel. He thinks that there could have been like a uh, human sacrifice uh, encoded in the Cain and Abel story. And that um, he, let's see how to explain this. This all gets into a lot of like theology and how to read uh, these type of texts. 
which I'm completely unqualified to do, but of course, we're all part of this society and this history and this culture. So we have to grapple with it at some point. But uh, he talks about the fact that it seems that uh, some, like a sacrifice, and many times it seems a human sacrifice, um, is necessary to the foundation of these cultures and civilizations. So someone has to do it, but no one wants to be associated with the person that did it. You know, it's violent, it, it, guilty. It's it's like a taboo thing to do. Um, so he talks about how uh, you have uh, figures such as Cain who um, commit this sacrifice and then they are banished, right? This gets to another anthropological concept, the idea that we're constantly, uh, it's like going back to like structural anthropology, the idea that we're kind of dividing things into twos and opposites all the time as human beings. So you have like the raw and the cooked, uh, men and women, uh, people and animals, um, civilization and the wilderness. So you get someone who commits this taboo act, they're banished to the wilderness, um, and then, you know, maybe taken in later. But he, through textual analysis, Maccabee um, links, says that it, it seems that we are descended from Cain. So we have this guilt that we are uh, beneficiaries of the sacrifice. Um, but, you know, it has to be kind of encoded or stamped down because you don't want to, and this is a problem with this whole angle, it's like a Christianity, right? Okay, we are going to uh, have God's son be sacrificed and that is what gives us eternal life. To commune with him, uh, we basically cannibalize him, but but no one, but it was just done once, don't do it. <laughs> like this is the big magic, but never do it. So it's like this constant uh, back and forth. So it's like these ways of, um, according to Maccabee, having kind of like the sacred executioner, uh, scapegoats, where you kind of manage this guilt and um, the desire to leverage this this big magic. Because, you you know, at a certain point, if everyone is just, you know, killing everyone, especially children, you know, that's the future, right? You can't kill all your children or else they're nothing, <laughs> that's the end. But to a certain extent, it seems like the gods want this. So it's, yeah, it's this very fraught relationship between uh, people and gods and the future and the natural world. Um, I don't know if I'm explaining it very well, but you see, again, uh, there's any numbers of examples of um, uh, uh, Romulus and Remus. One of them conveniently dies at the founding of Rome. Um, the Roman civilization. Uh, there is actually put this towards the back, but there was an early uh, uh, Greek myth around uh, Zeus and uh, some kind of weird uh, continuing rumors about one guy who tried to uh, who uh, cooked up his own son as a sacrifice and gave it to Zeus. Zeus is very mad. So it's kind of an, another type of a thing where, uh, or myth where, okay, we used to do this, but no, the gods don't want it now. You don't have to do it. That's not happening. Um, and again, this guy was, uh, King was uh, banished to live in the wilderness and seen as a wolf, right? An animal uh, as opposed to human. Um, and if you look at 
for example, Iphigenia, I guess, was a, a young Greek woman who was sacrificed by her father for, I believe, good weather and war. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> so you see that uh, at these cultural uh, moments um, where there's big change or uh, founding of the civilization, it just constantly comes up that there are these sacrifices. Or you have, uh, for example, uh, Passover in Israel. Um, God was like, okay, I'm just going to take all these, all these firstborn children and, you know, sacrifice a lamb uh, in, uh, instead of your son and uh, put blood over the, uh, the uh, doorway and I'll pass over your house and I won't deliver that uh, horribleness on you. But uh, all the Egyptians, um, those little babies died. So Yahweh is merciful for not taking uh you know the the uh, sons of the houses that he passed over but it's just i apparently had a massive bloodlust <laughs> all the other ones were fair game so there's this continuing uh tension between the effectiveness of human sacrifice the necessity of it and that we're trying to figure out we don't want people to go whole hog <laughs> that route and we're trying to bargain with God or gods. How do we keep from having to have this happen, right? Yeah, I mean, it is certainly fascinating. And um, to see again, I mean, and, you know, it kind of plays into sort of the ongoing, I think, obsession too with some of the bloodlines. I mean, supposedly that derived from Cain as well and some of these groups. Um, which again is interesting with Maccabee claiming that we're all descendants from Cain, but um, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a, uh, a fascinating subject there, <laughs> and I think that's a, a good spot to wrap things up for now. Um, <clears throat> this actually ended up being a fairly long conversation with Stephanie, and uh, I don't want to overwhelm you guys with all the information in this particular instance that we're going to uh, put forth with this uh, episode. So, thought it might be uh good to divide this into two separate parts here uh so anyway this is the conclusion of the first part of this discussion uh we'll probably pick up again the subscriber section patreon section with uh, the second part of this discussion which is going to get into some really juicy stuff we're going to go into um the ties to columbia dignidad in this area of the world some of um George Hunt Williamson's ventures uh, into South America before he uh, declared himself the king of Romania, an exploration of some of the different grimoires used, uh, including the semi-mythological uh, white, black, and red books of magic, which we have a really great discussion about. Um, it's definitely uh, something that you guys aren't going to want to miss, so anyway, keep that in mind. Uh, there is a second part to this discussion with Stephanie Quick. It will be fantastic when I get it up. And on that note, we will sign off for now. As always, I say good night and good luck to you all. Come on, baby, pick me up. Out here in my wiki up. Sick and tired of fucking up. Sick and tired of pushing luck. Swallow what I'm about to spit Don't got 86 from the copper queen for singing this I took it to the goat chain We were raised, my people there, they feeling me Down low, skin low, more characters than Stephen King Said I'm just working at
Forget about your man. 